I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Nehemiah chapter 5. It's one of those interesting moments in uh, a story, uh, a parenthetical almost, a pause in the normal story to kind of interrupt it with some other information. That's what chapter 5 is. Uh, And so as we come to it this morning, we'll finish it out this morning, did the first half last week. We want to understand why is that, and is that important, and is it helpful, and obviously the answer to all those is that yes, it is is helpful, and yes, it is important, but how and why should we think of it that way? And so I want to begin by reading the text, Uh, and if you were able to be with us here last week, you remember that the first half of chapter 5 is the nobles and officials in Jerusalem taking advantage of the people, charging them exorbitant interest, taking mortgage on their homes selling their children, making, compelling them to sell their children into debt slavery just so they have enough money to buy food. So you have all this negative. And then the last half of chapter 5 is this autobiographical moment from Nehemiah about how he's not doing any of that. And he's the, the explicit opposite of what these guys are doing. So that's just prep for it. Nehemiah 5, uh, pick up in verse 14. I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter in verse 19. Moreover, from that time... From the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall. And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I've done for this people. Well, this is definitely an interruption in the story of Nehemiah. We, we have the walls need to be built. Ask the king, let me go build the walls, go to build the walls, start experiencing enemies and conflict from outside the city, Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem, and nobody wants them to build. And so we're fighting about that. But the people rally, they start building the walls. And then it's, it's like a record scratch er, moment. But this is what's happening inside. And here's something that happens for 12 years. And then the very next chapter, we're going to go back to conflict, Sambalat, Tobiah, and how they're fighting. And so we want to ask, why this interruption? Well, sometimes when you interrupt a story, when you have a parenthetical moment, you're rolling along, uh, and then suddenly you stop and say, oh, let me tell you this. It could actually be a very powerful story tool. I'm sure we've all been reading a book, and suddenly they, they switch. One chapter goes back to something that happened years ago. Uh, or you're watching a movie and suddenly you're like, oh, let me stop and give you the backstory on this character and why are they functioning this way and how are they operating this way and who are they? And it becomes an incredibly powerful tool in a storytelling to get people's attention and really to help prime the pump for other things that are going to be happening. We see it in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you have, uh, they watch Jesus ascend to the heavens. Everything seems wonderful. Uh, the angel says, why are you still looking to heaven? You know, basically get busy about the work Jesus told you to do. So the apostles are like, yeah, let's go do that. You have Pentecost, thousands get saved. The church gets founded. Uh, the church continues to grow. Miracles are done. Um, even the, the priests, 
the high priest, the chief priest, and the others that want to persecute the church. You even have this guy Gamaliel who's called the light of the law. He actually was the guy who trained Paul uh, in the law. He stands up for them, and, and everything seems to be great. Even when you have problems within, like we're going to see in Nehemiah, with Ananias and Sapphira, God does this miraculous thing, makes it clear, and frankly kills them for lying uh, and, and really deceiving everybody about who they were. And so you see God protecting the church and growing the church. You have a racial conflict that happens. Why aren't the Greek Jew, uh, widows being taken care of? Oh, you know what? We need deacons, and we need to figure it out this way. So you have all any problems just seem to be overcome, and then you almost have this er, record scratch moment. And Stephen shows up. And he's one of the deacons, and he's preaching, and he gets killed. And when he's killed, there's this guy that we come to know about named Saul, who's there approving of it and holding all the coats. And you're a little bit like, wow, this is a terrible moment. So if you follow Christ, this is what's going to happen? And Stephen is actually using similar language to Jesus when he says, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And you're like, wow, this is a dark chapter. Well, then the very next chapter, guess what? Everything starts rolling along well again. Uh, people are getting saved, a sorcerer. So this guy that communes with demonic forces for power gets saved. Um, there's another guy, he's an Ethiopian eunuch. And, and so he had been in Jerusalem worshiping, but he's a Gentile, clearly. Uh, he's traveling back and God picks up Philip and like plucks him and then transports him and drops him near the Ethiopian eunuch so he can just read the Bible with him and explain the gospel, and the Ethiopian eunuch gets saved and gets baptized. And so again, it's this powerful moment where you're like, this is amazing because it's telling us that no matter the depths of your sin, like the sorcerer who gets saved, or no matter your nationality, or even the abuses you've experienced, the Ethiopian eunuch, God is coming and he's on mission to save people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it's a glorious moment. And you'd be left wondering, what was, what was with the death of Stephen in this introduction of this guy named Saul? Well, the very next chapter starts when you're now anticipating everything rolling along well again, and yet there was Saul, and meanwhile, he was killing people. And then Saul's converted. And then when you get to that moment, you realize that interruption, that pause about the death of Stephen and Saul interacting was to show you how dark and evil this man was. So that your heart rejoices and you celebrate in his glorious salvation. And the whole Ethiopian eunuch thing, guess who the apostle is that God really sends to the Gentiles to share the truth of Christ? It's Paul, Saul, who becomes Paul. And so when you have a story and you have a parenthetical moment, a pause, and it seems out of order, particularly in the Bible, it is a good moment for you to sit up, pay attention, and say, there's something here then that I'm supposed to really get. And that's exactly what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 5. It is a pause, just like Saul, getting saved, Saul being introduced and later getting saved to get our attention. Nehemiah 5 is a pause in the story. And so what I want to help us do is to understand it in a context first in Nehemiah's story, and then secondarily in context in the biblical story, and then we'll be able to look at and ask, what does this have to do with me and with you today, a couple thousand years later? And so, in Nehemiah's story, we have these guys, these terrible officials, and they've been introduced to us, and they're doing all these horrible things. 
And so in the Nehemiah story, what he's telling us is satanic opposition to God's mission is just as likely to come from within as it ever is to come from without. When you think about being on mission for God, when you think about doing ministry, when you think about pushing forward, advancing God's agenda, God's kingdom, you should come to expect there to be opposition within as well as without. Now, you can't always predict who or how, but you can be guaranteed it will come. That's part of what Nehemiah is telling us. It's not just that we get to band together as a family and the only people that are against us are those that are outside of our home. No, it's going to be people that are inside the home as well. Now, this is all through the biblical narrative. All along the way, we, any of us expect people on the other team to be fighting us. None of us expect people on our own team to be fighting against us. And yet Eve is the one with her conversation with Adam She's deceived. Adam goes full on into it. Cain kills his brother, Abel. And you see this opposition within. Korah opposes Moses. You fast forward to the New Testament. You have Peter fighting with Jesus about the cross. He says, I'm going to go to the cross. No, you better not. Fighting with him over it. Opposing him. You have Judas betraying Jesus. Diatrophies with the apostles. Folks, it's not unusual. It's not rare. And it's astoundingly painful and hard. But satanic opposition will come from within just as much as from without. James tells us why in James chapter 4. He says, where do wars and fightings come from? And he's talking to the church. He says, they come from within. They come from your wicked ruling desires. He uses the Greek term hedonai. We convert it into hedonism in our day. And the desire of itself, in and of itself may not be bad, may not be evil, but it becomes a ruling desire. The desire becomes a demand. You have to have it your way, this way, my way. And as that happens, you absolutely will begin to see other people as an obstacle to your happiness. In the life of the church, then, what James is telling them is there will be some that will say, it's got to be my way, and if it's not my way, it's the highway, and they'll fight with you. Where does opposition within come from? It comes from these kinds of wicked, ruling desires, desires going wrong, desires that become demands, desires that are all about the me monster, these nobles and officials. They, they, they might be cheering the building of the wall. They, they may be even claiming, hey, we're helping with the building of the wall, right? We're, we're the ones that are giving them the money so that they can buy their food. Of course, we're getting, giving them money at exorbitant interest, and we're mortgaging their properties, and, and we're demanding their children for debt slavery. But without our money, the wall isn't getting built. They may be making all these kinds of justifying arguments. But at the end of the day, they are viewing ministry as a self-consumption moment. It's not a sacrificial moment for them. It's all about their bank account, their wealth, their future, their security, and no one else. Why is the story here? Why is there this record scratch, interruption, pause moment in the story of Nehemiah? It's to remind us that there will always be people that are opposed to the faithfulness of God. Without and within. See, the book of Nehemiah is all about God's faithfulness. It's all about the fact that when God promises something, he does it. He fulfills it. He comes through with it. From the earliest days in the garden, Satan's questions to Eve had everything to do with, can God really be trusted? And this is at the very core of satanic opposition. Can you really believe God? So in a story that's all about God being faithful to his promises, it shouldn't surprise us 
that one of, Satan, one of Satan's moments, his motives, his opportunities, was to try to convince people that God's not really for you. He won't really take care of you. Famously, George Bush, he's running for president in 1988. And at the Republican convention, he said, read my lips, no new taxes. He then is elected as president, comes into the presidency, and there's a Democratic-controlled Congress and a Democratic-controlled Senate. And so when they go to sign the budget, how are they going to do the budget? Well, the Democrats knew exactly what they were doing, political opponents, and they wove all these new taxes into it. George Bush was over a barrel. What was he going to do? Don't sign the budget and stop the government from functioning or sign the budget? He negotiated as hard as he could, and at the end of the day, he signed it into law, and it included new taxes. Fast forward about three years later, and he almost loses, even as a sitting president, he almost lost the Republican nomination for, to run for presidency for re-election, and he eventually loses to Bill Clinton. And the reason he lost, pundits will tell you, is because he lied. He broke his promise. I'm not attacking George Bush. It's, but my point is this. If you have someone, a leader, promise you something, and they fail at it. They lie to you. Faithfulness is broken. So if God is going to say, I'm going to rebuild my people. I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem, and I'm going to establish you there, and it's going to be safe for you there. Peter read a quote from Amos this morning that foretells the future when they will be fully restored. If Satan can somehow make it so that promise doesn't come true, destroys your confidence in God. Satanic opposition will always be about eroding confidence in God. You can't trust him. And so opposition is all about creating doubt, and it comes from without. And at this point in the Nehemiah story, it comes from within. And so that's why it's here. That's why this record scratch moment is in the story of Nehemiah. But we want to ask in a bigger picture, why is it in the biblical story? Well, in the biblical story, God's promise, again, is about rebuilding his people here. Here's my covenant people, Israel. I, they are my people, and I will be their God. There's these external signs, right? Um, so all the males were circumcised. You had to obey the law in certain respects. You needed to offer sacrifices. Uh, you needed to care for widows and orphans. You, you, you needed to leave the corners of your fields uncut so that, so that they could glean there. People who had no money and no food could glean there. Have you ever seen an Orthodox Jew, a photo of an Orthodox Jew, and you see the curls that come down from the, on the side of their heads? Have you ever wondered why that's there? It's there because of Old Testament law, and it's their understanding of it to this day, that God said, leave the corners of your beards uncut. Why? To remind you to leave the corners of your fields uncut so that other people could glean. In other words, the law and God's covenant people were all about loving God and loving your neighbor, caring for the stranger, the dispossessed, the disenfranchised, the impoverished. It was always about providing for others out of a heart of love so that the world around was intended to look at Israel, God's covenant people, and they were intended to look and see who God is and to create a hunger for them, for that kind of a God who would love other people, love God and love others. And so when the nation of Israel goes into captivity, into Babylon, there's going to be this massive question and an accusation from the other nations. What kind of a God is this if he sends his own people into captivity? And so God said, I'm, all, I'm going to bring them out. There will be prom there's promises. I'm promising you I will bring you home. 
the biblical story, Nehemiah, is all about God fulfilling those promises. But when we get to the end of Nehemiah, we're left with a question. Because as we study Nehemiah going forward, and this is kind of our first hint of it here in chapter 5, you can build the walls and you can build the temple, but that doesn't change the people living in the city. It would be like if you and I went to some supermax prison and put in a new food court and opened a gap and let everybody, I don't know, get smoothies at Smoothie King, you may have changed a lot of the particulars of what Supermax is like, but you haven't changed the inhabitants. That's kind of what Nehemiah starts pointing us to. That God's people, his covenant people, can be brought back, and you can build the city and you can build the temple, but you still got guys like this living in it. Can you imagine? Like, this, this one defies mindset. And, and I just, I know this church, and I know this will, this will blow your mind. And in part, I say that even because of how well you generously and graciously ministered this past week uh, to the sweet girls from the Zanya Children's Choir. They were a delight, weren't they? Um, I got more hugs in like 45 seconds than I, than I get in a week. It was amazing. Um, so can you imagine being a noble? You're sitting in your house, knock at the door, you go to the door, <clears throat> you're, you're almost Scrooge McDuck counting your coins. And, and this guy's at the door and he's standing there with his hat in his hand and he's got his three little kids next to him and he says, um... Any way we could get some money for some food. And you can tell he's filthy. He's still got mortar stuck to his, his clothes from building the wall that day. He says, any way we could get, I don't know, a few dollars so that we could buy some food tonight, some bread tonight. Me and my kids were hungry. We, we came, came, you know, 20 miles to get to Jerusalem. Any way we could get some money. And, and can you imagine you looking at them and saying, what could you give me for collateral? Because I just want to make sure whatever I give you, you pay back. Can you fathom that? Can you fathom the level of cruelty and coldness that's in these guys' hearts? Look, you can build a new wall around these dudes, and you can have a temple, but unless you change the people, it doesn't point to God, does it? Nehemiah chapter 5 is this parenthetical moment that, that foretells, frankly, that while the city walls get built, there's still lots of dark things ahead in Nehemiah because unless you change the hearts of the people, you've changed very little. Well, who has the power to do that? Just to be honest, it's actually a lot easier to build a wall than it is to change a heart, isn't it? It's like raising the dead. And I only know one who has the power to do that. And so Nehemiah here in the biblical story, chapter 5, is telling us that it points us to a, a, a moment where, where hearts are crying out, Oh God, oh God, would you move? Would you send revival? Would you change hearts? Would you save the lost? Would you convict the believer so that they are on mission to love you and love their neighbor as they would themselves? Nothing can stay God's hand, but unless God moves, and it sounds an awful lot like another passage of Scripture, that unless God builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. 
Unless God is on the move in the hearts and lives of these people, nothing is going to change. And so our heart then is left crying that God would fulfill his promises, not just of building a city, but of building a people. And so that's why it's here. That's why this record scratch moment, this interruption, this parenthetical chapter exists in the Nehemiah story and in the biblical story. So then what does it really point us to? Well, it points us to some significant differences. Nehemiah typically is studied for two main reasons. And uh, you might even remember at the start of Nehemiah, several weeks ago, I asked how many of you have ever sat through a sermon on series on Nehemiah. And, and there was actually a few that raised their hands. It's typically studied for two main reasons. In a church context, um, either because the church is going into a building program. And so if you think building program, got 66 books in the Bible, what book in the Bible should we study? Well, there's one book that's all about a building program. Let's study Nehemiah. Right? That's just the way people think. Or, or you think leadership. We need to do a study on leadership. How are we going to study leadership? Well, you could study the Gospels and look at leadership principles from Jesus' life. You could study Exodus and look at leadership principles from Moses' life. But if there's one book that's all about a leader that's autobiographical, it's Nehemiah. So typically, Nehemiah is studied either for a building program or for a leadership uh, course. And, and so, honestly, even in my classes about leadership, I cannot tell you how many Christian books are written about leadership that just read through Nehemiah and derive principles. It's really, frankly, very risky um, as a way, as an approach, uh, because you can go wrong really easily, right? So like in our text, even this morning, Nehemiah goes without salary. Good leaders don't get paid then. You see how that principle goes? Paul said, I, let me get paid. And yet, then you have other accounts where there's not a problem with leaders getting paid. So you got it's, it's a little bit risky. Having said that, there's some incredible wisdom in Nehemiah about building and leadership. You just have to be careful about how you get there. Well, this chapter points to you, points our hearts to significant differences about leaders. And you could really boil it down to one word, fear of the Lord. Now, I want to show that to you because fear of the Lord becomes a dominant picture of the difference between a good leader and a bad leader. So if Nehemiah, when we think about the book of Nehemiah, as far as God goes, one word should come to mind, faithful. Think, Nehemiah, what does it teach me about God? It teaches me God is faithful. Nehemiah, what does it teach me about leaders? It teaches me that they're fearful. And to be very clear, we're talking about fear of the Lord. It shows up four times in Nehemiah. Significantly, we have the bookends. Let me just remind you of those. And so if you have your Bibles, you can see this really quickly. But in Nehemiah 1.11, Nehemiah says this. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now it's cupbearer to the king. This is right before Nehemiah is about to actually make his request. And he's telling us by saying at the end, I was cupbearer. He's telling us this is how I have this opportunity. But by prefacing it, by saying those who delight to fear in you. Nehemiah is saying it was a joy in his heart to live in a reverential respect for who God is. This is what drove him. And unless we were wondering, the other bookend, you get to Nehemiah chapter 7, there comes a moment when Nehemiah is appointing a governor over Jerusalem. And so he tells us what he's looking for. Nehemiah 7.2, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. He doesn't pace his appointment because they are brothers. This isn't nepotism. 
He bases it because it's a character assessment. If you go to the New Testament and you were to look for certain leaders, what should you look for in a leader? Uh, you know, if you think of the disciples, what do you look for in a leader? How do you find a leader? Well, we still live in a culture, in a world where there are people, and it's leadership theory. The question is, are you born a leader or are you made a leader? And if you're born a leader, what does a leader look like? And so all the way back in ancient Israel, who did they pick when they wanted a king? The guy that was head and shoulders above everybody else, the guy that looked good, and the guy that could seem like he fight, could fight well. They chose Saul. And Saul was an utter and abysmal failure. Uh, we still live in a culture that when uh, Jack Kennedy defeated Richard Nixon, he defeated him because it was the first televised debate. Richard Nixon was just overcoming the flu and just looked pale and anemic, and Jack Kennedy shows up tanned and young and good-looking. And it absolutely swayed the vote from that point forward. We live in a culture when they say pick a leader, most people are going to, they've, done, they've actually done height estimations on leaders. And in most people, if you put them in front of a crowd of people and you say pick the leader, choose the leader, typically the cutoff line is six foot. This does not bode well for hobbits. Right? Like, like this morning I'm singing and I'm looking now, look up at my 12-year-old. I love having tall sons. I still got some old men's strength. I can still tear them up. But, you know, it's like, wow. Like, we are driven this way. We think, and so God tells us even, right? Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Integrity is what matters. When you're choosing elders or deacons, it goes all about character. Character. And are they proven to have character? If you're talking to your children about dating, what do you talk to them about? Make sure you find the prettiest girl. Make sure you find the best looking guy. Find somebody who knows Jesus, loves him, will love you. Somebody that has character. And so Nehemiah, when he's looking, he looks for, and the requirement he looks for is somebody who fears God. This is what matters. And so you have these bookend moments about leadership in Nehemiah. They're all about fear of the Lord. And then you have the two, and the other two occurrences happen right here in Nehemiah chapter 5. One negative and then one positive. Uh, chapter 5, verse 9, when he's speaking of these nobles, he says, So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? They're terrible leaders because of their behavior. They're doing great damage to the poor for their own gain. They ignore social justice issues of their day. They dominate the economy in a way that leaves people enslaved and in debt beyond their ability to pay. But these are all symptoms of a root cause. They don't fear God. They don't live in the awareness they will stand before God one day. They're more worried about their retirement package then they're about answering to God about how they got the money for their retirement package. There's no character to them. They don't live in any awareness that there's a greater judge that I will answer to. They don't fear God. Nehemiah is on the flip side. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 15. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver, even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Modern day money, that's something around 11, 12 grand. So it's not a ton. Doesn't seem like to us. 
But to people in poverty, it was pushing them over the edge. You know, you can tell a lot about different heroes and villains just by the way they look. You recognize them immediately. When I was a kid, the, the quintessential difference was good cowboys wear white hats and bad cowboys wear black hats. Even though the reality is no cowboy lived long that wore a white hat. Like this, you know. That'd be like you going to fight in the jungles of Vietnam wearing blaze orange. Right? But it was a way to understand good guys wear white, bad guys wear black. That's just the way it is. And that was a problem because I always thought the black hats looked cooler. So I always had to be the bad guy. I know. So many of you are shocked by that revelation. But we understood on a very basic level, Nehemiah is telling us something. Good leaders fear God and bad, bad leaders don't. That's what he's telling us. Good leaders fear God. Bad leaders don't. And so then that would drive us then to ask the natural question, what's with the fear of the Lord? And I've waited this long to give you what I hope is what you take away the most from the sermon this morning. And that is this, to fear God, you love him. And when you love God, you fear him. You know, the reality is we hear something like fear of God. And I think most of us go to the only kind of fear of God that we have known, and that's terror fear. God is out to get me and crush me like a bug. He knows every sinful thing I've done, every sinful thought I've thought, every sinful dream I've dreamed, every desire I've had. And I am wicked within, I am fully carnal. God knows it. God's holy. God's going to judge me and destroy me. And what's difficult for us is that there's a reality to that. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The reality is the wages of sin is death. The fact of the matter is to stand before a holy God as a sinful human being is a terrifying concept. God will judge us. But what happens with that fear when we get saved? What happens when that fear has driven us to understand and to see God's holy redemptive love, that while we're sinners, Christ died for us? And to prove, to validate, to confirm his love toward us, he sends his son to die for us, to, to be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, sinless, go to death of his own choosing, to die and consume all of God's wrath for your sin on himself. And if you will turn from your sin and trust him, believe in what he has done for you, then he saves you and he makes you his own. What happens with that terror, fear, then how in the world do we understand fear? And how in the world do I say that it's so connected to love? To, to be able to boldly say to fear God, you love him. And when you love God, you fear him. Well, I think Jesus speaking about it is the clearest indication for us in Luke chapter 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That is terror fear. It's not just that, that we die, but we answer to someone after we die. And we answer to a holy, righteous God, a perfect judge. Quit thinking that it matters so much what everybody else thinks about you. This is wisdom to recognize the fear of the Lord. And the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is seeing life 
as God sees it and then acting accordingly. And so what you're doing in this moment is you're recognizing, why would I ultimately be afraid of someone who could point a gun at me and kill me? Yeah, I don't, I don't want to die and I'm afraid of dying, but, but what I'm really afraid of is what's going to happen after I die. That's what Jesus is saying. But look at what he says right on the heels of it. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You have more value than many sparrows. Do you see the strong divisions there? Do you see the, the tension that exists even in what Jesus is saying? Terrifying fear, horrible fear, fear of the utter absolute darkness and flames and the torment of hell. Absolutely. To be condemned as a sinner and no way out. But then on the flip side, we have this embracing, made safe from that fear, restful love in God. It's an amazing truth. Deuteronomy holds out the same thing. Way back when God is making Israel his people, his covenant people, he says this, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. How do we understand these things? What happens to my terror fear when I'm saved? It becomes an awe-filled respect fear. An absolute recognition and awareness of who God is. How I should function and live in front of him. This is what Nehemiah is saying. Because I fear God, it changes the decisions I make. It changes the actions I take. It changes what I do, how I feel, what I think. It changes me. And I love him. And the more I respect him, the more I love him. And the more I love him, the more I respect him. To love God is to fear him. To fear God is to love him. John Piper tells a story that might be helpful. He talks about going on visitation with his son, Karsten, who was six years old at the time. They went to visit a man in the church, and the man had one of those huge dogs. So that when Karsten went to the door, and they knocked on the door, and the man opened the door, the dog was standing there eyeball to eyeball with his six-year-old son. That's a big dog. He's staring his son down. Well, Carson immediately is, is impressed by the size of this dog and frankly a little bit scared. And so John Piper sent his son Carson. They forgot something in the car. He said, Carson, could you go back to the car to get something? So Carson turns around and starts headed back to the car. Well, the dog starts right behind Carson and is giving this low, you can feel it in the core of your being kind of growl. And the owner yells after Carson and says, Carson, walk, he doesn't like it when people run from him. And so Karsten walked, and the dog walked next to him. And Piper talks about how in that moment, that's actually a really good picture of the fear of God. The terror fear of God is all about trying to run from him. And he is fierce in his holiness and his righteousness, and he will run you down. But oh, to walk beside him, there is no safer place for he will let nothing come to you but that which is good for you. And he will rescue your soul with all of his might and all of his power. This is a picture of the fear of the Lord. Or it might help you to have a song to think about with it. Maybe Amazing Grace, as John Newton puts pen to paper as the former slave trader Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. 
Listen now, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Fear that leads to love, that leads to awe-filled, respectful fear, that increases love, that increases respect and awe. It's a beautiful cycle of deepening love and trust and obedience and worship. And the reality is this, terror fear should drive us to respect fear, and the bridge between the two is love. God's love first for us, and our responsive love to him. To fear God is to love him, and to love God is to fear him. And so then that would drive us to this question. How can I love God? You ever been in a moment where you realize how broken and carnal you are? How weak you are? And so how do I, how do I show love to God? Have you ever met somebody and you've been speechless because you don't, you don't know what to say? Can you think all the way back to your teenage years when you were suddenly in the presence of your crush? Your palms got sweaty, your heart started racing, and suddenly you were hit with a dumb stick and you didn't know what to say? Have you ever been in the presence of someone you really respect, some, some, some figure, some celebrity, me and some friends of mine when I was living in Wisconsin, we went to hear President Bush speak at the time, the, the younger president, and we were there and we got tickets that were amazing, literally were in the handshake line at this place. And it was really cool at the time, I still had hair, uh, but my buddy didn't have hair and President Bush is up there speaking. He's like, I'm so thankful for all my friends that are here. People had signs. I'm, I'm thankful for the Young Republican Club over here. And I'm thankful for my friends from over here. I'm thankful for my friends over here. I'm even thankful. And he looked down at my buddy. I kid you not. Gave a little pistol. He's from Texas. And said, I'm even thankful for my bald friends. <laughs> and we were like, stunned silence. It was like the coolest moment, right? You got a shout out from the press. He came through and we're like shaking hands and people are pushing and shoving. It was just a great moment. You, but you're like, what do you say? Uh, thank, thank you, Mr. President. I'm uh, praying for you, Mr. President. Uh, you're, like, you're like a giddy little kid. You feel like an idiot afterwards. There's this moment where you just realize when you start to, to soak in the love of God. I mean, what do you compare it to? Like you're driving one day and you're speeding and a cop pulls you over and they come up and you realize you're speeding. They know you're speeding. And they're going to give you a ticket and then they say, you know what, I'm just going to let you off with a warning. And you're like super grateful and you tell all your friends that week. Because you were under judgment and now you're not. Like it doesn't even taste the same as to come to an awareness of how holy God is, how sinful we are, and how much we deserve his judgment. And so for him to pour all of his wrath on his son that you deserve is an overwhelming, all-consuming, pride-breaking affection. You don't have words, thank you, My wife had another test this week. The doctor called me as I sit in the parking lot. I hate, and I mean this, that's what my grandma used to say, Steve, be careful what you say you hate. Yes, grandma, I remember. I hate 
sitting in parking lots waiting for doctor's phone calls at this point in my life. I'm going to tell you right now, you get one bad phone call, you're tainted for life. The doctor called, and he said, first thing he said, hey, this is Dr. So-and-so. Hey, this is great. Yeah. And he says, everything looks great. First words out of his mouth. And then I keep interrupting him because I'm like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Like, how do you express gratitude? Like, he's not even in my presence. I can't, I mean, I don't even know if he's a hugger. He'd have gotten a hug. He'd have gotten one of those, like, I can't breathe right hugs, right? Like, how do you express gratitude when you realize this of what God has done for us? I think a good picture of it is this guy. In 1981, Jim was driving and he was hit head on by a drunk driver. It was a devastating collision. It resulted in severe brain damage. It left him with severe short-term memory loss, a damaged frontal lobe, as well as multiple broken bones in his arms and his legs. His career options obviously are wrecked from that point on. He ended up working in the filing room doing, if I can say this, to be honest with you, brainless kind of work. Because it's the only kind of work he could do. While he's trying to raise children and be a good dad. As he got older, he even got to the point physically he couldn't work anymore because of the multiple surgeries he'd had. He'd always loved his children. He'd always tried to be a good dad to them. But it's so hard for him to find ways to show his kids he loves them because he's so trapped in the broken shell. His little girl Morgan was headed off to college. That's a hard time for any family. It's a hard time for any parent. How do I show my kid my You know, you're worried they're going to go away. Will they text you back? Will they call you back? Will they have interaction? How do I show my kid I love them when they're trying to spread their wings and move on and be independent, but I still love them. How do, I, how do I do it? And this was Jim's perspective, and his daughter Morgan noticed that he kept saving all his pocket change. It was a little bit out of the norm for him. And then right before she headed off to school, he handed her this one of his medicine bottles filled with coins with that little note. It's too small to read. From there, it gives the date, $11.19, coffee money, love dad. Man, how do you show love when you're so broken? I, I don't know if Morgan would say this, but I, I think that's just an astounding display of love. How do I love the one who has loved me so much? How do I, love, how do I show love to God? How do we show love for God when his is so full and yet we are so limited? That's actually what Nehemiah is showing us. I've done all that work to show you when you fear God, you love him. And when you love God, you fear him. And so I'm going to say this, love like he loves. I'm going to make it very, try to make it very simple here. Love like he, how, what happens when you fear God? You love him. And what happens when you love God? Guess what you're going to do? You're going to love other people. Love like he loves. I'll give it to you in a couple ways. Number one, love intentionally. Love intentionally. Verse 14, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. From the very first day, he was aware of the impact that it would have on the people if he demanded the tax that he had a right to. 
And he tells us the rights the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. There's so much there, even in the sense that when he says his servants ordered over, because here's what's happened. When you have leaders who don't fear God, the people that work with them and under them don't fear God either. But when you have leaders who fear God, it reigns in even the selfish pursuits of others. Nehemiah loves intentionally. Nehemiah is consumed by this love-filled fear of God. So he loves the broken. He loves the impoverished. He loves the hurting, and he loves the needy. He loves with intentionality, and he loves with passion. The nobles are cruel and cold and indifferent, but Nehemiah is kind, loving, and intentional and caring for them. He loves intentionally because God has loved him intentionally. You know what's an oxymoron? That's not an English test. It's two things that cannot be true in the same sentence, right? Here's an oxymoron for you. Selfish Christian. I'll give you another one. This is a longer phrase. I can't boil it down into one word. It's an expression of selfishness, right? Here it is. Here it is. Christian who does not care about the broken and needy of this world cannot exist because God cares about the broken and the needy of this world in profound, passionate, loving ways. And you know, if you only, if you struggle seeing the proof of that, look around this room and you see a room full of broken and needy people. There's a reason when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, literally the words, the language there mean those who are beggars spiritually. And he says there's a happiness to them, a God-given happiness to them because they're safe in him. And so Nehemiah loves intentionally because he lives in the fear of the Lord. He soaks in the fear of the Lord. He thinks about who God is and how God functions. And then that drives him out of a heart to want to love like he loves. You want to show that you love God and it may feel like a medicine bottle full of coins. Love intentionally the way he loves intentionally. What does intentional love look like? God did not wait for you to ask him for Jesus to sacrifice for you before he did it. Intentional love looks like initiating love. Intentional love looks like pursuing love. Intentional love means like, it's not like you, you had to intrude on me to love you. I want to create space in my life to love you. That's what fear of the Lord driven love looks like. I'm going to make it my goal, my mission. How can I love intentionally this week? How can I love intentionally today? How can I go out of my way, not waiting to be loved, but seeking to love? Love like God loves. Love intentionally. Love generously. Nehemiah doesn't just not take the 40 shekels of silver, but he then goes and tells us exactly what it cost. I also persevered in the work on this wall. We acquired no land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my, at my expense, my expense, not the people's, not the taxes, not the poor, not the nobles and officials. My, now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, 
all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. That is 12 years. That's 26,280 sheep, 657,000 oxen with birds and wine on top of that over the course of 12 years and current money that would have cost three and a half million dollars. He sacrifices to serve, to care for, and to love. He forgoes his rights to have the privilege of leading a difficult people. I love that moment. Like, it's so, like, it's laughably funny to me. It's eerily reminiscent of Corinthians with Paul. You're in it for power and for money. While Paul's running around, naked abused has nothing and getting beaten up at every turn. Nehemiah, you're in it for power. Really? He doesn't take a dime and it costs him three and a half million dollars? Yeah, this is, this is Nehemiah's dream job. He had no plans to retire to Egypt and just live the cush life on the, in the Delta, right? He was so zealous to be the governor. I've got to be in charge. Let me spend three and a half million dollars so I can be in charge. So it costs me all the time to lead a bunch of people that include the kind of people we saw in the first half of chapter five. These are not a delight. Why does he do it? Why is he so generous? Because God is generous. He loves generously because God has loved him generously. Generosity is not measured in the amount given. It's measured in the capacity to give. So when Jesus praises the woman who gives two mites for her generosity, she is giving far less than anyone around her, but she's giving everything she has. It's her capacity, not the totality of the number. Generous love is the kind of love that affects every area of your life. Generosity is not just measured in money, it's measured in time and energy and talents, advice and counsel. Generosity, by its nature, must cost you. It has to cost you. Do you love generously? Or do you love safely? Without risk? Because generosity is risky. Because generosity may mean that you don't know what's going to happen next week. And what if you have need? And in the moment you say and think that, I just want to be very clear with you, what you're recognizing is how fear of God is connected to love and faithfulness and trust. And so how do we love God? We love intentionally, we love generously, and then like Nehemiah, we love persistently. Twelve years is no blink. Nehemiah loves, <coughs> Nehemiah loves and keeps on loving long after the wall is rebuilt. It takes 52 days to rebuild the wall. Nehemiah is there for 12 years. He loves them like God loves him. With persistence. 
Despite who he is and despite what he does, God loves him. Despite his weakness, despite his failures, God loves him. Despite his bouts of selfishness and his wrestlings, God loves him. Despite the moments when he's not sure if he should give in or not, God loves him. Despite the moments when he wants to give up, God loves him. He loves him persistently. So despite their poverty, despite their resistance, Nehemiah keeps on loving them. He loves persistently because God is persistent. Because God is faithful in his love toward Nehemiah. Nehemiah loves like God loves. This is what fear of the Lord looks like. And then secondarily, look for his reward. The very last verse. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Now, let me ask, is that selfish? Is it selfish for Nehemiah to say, now, Lord, you've seen what I put in here. So remind you, you have seen what I have put in here. <laughs> Do not forget it. I think we have to remember a couple things here. One thing that we have to remember is it's not uncommon for you and I to not see the full fruit of what we do. And so by faith, we're hoping and believing that it matters in eternity. And I do believe that's part of what Nehemiah is saying here. Because this part is in the middle of them building the walls, but it's very clear there's this parenthetical moment, this record scratch moment, because it's after 12 years of doing this. He's putting it in here because there's other parts of Nehemiah to come where the walls get built, the gates get hung, but the people don't get transformed. And it's going to feel like a failure. It would feel like if you suddenly came into a lot of money and, and you got a bunch of kids and you're like, hey, what do you want? Well, I want this in my room and I want a slide that goes outside and I want an in-ground pool and I want a basketball court and, I want it. and you have the money and, and, and you have the wealth and the means and, and it's just uncommon. And so you build a house that's every kid's favorite thing and it's just the kitchen your wife wants and it's just the man cave that you want and uh, it, it's got an indoor shooting range because you're that kind of guy and a multi-car garage and because you're that kind of guy and it's amazing you've built all this wonderful thing and in five years none of your kids will speak to each other your marriage is on the rocks and everybody hates each other who cares and we'd all agree who cares there's a part of Nehemiah, the walls get built, the doors get hung, the gates are there, the temple's functioning, and the people are still broken. There's a part of Nehemiah that would have a heart that would say, God, you've seen, you know. Because there's not a lot of clear evidence. No, I don't think Nehemiah's being selfish. I think he's revealing who he was doing it for. He wasn't on mission for all the accolades. It isn't selfish to say, God, take this cup of water in your name and glorify your name with it. Make it bigger than it is. Do you know what it is? It's Nehemiah saying, take this medicine bottle of coins and next time you buy a coffee, remember it was from dad. I love you. It's God, take this little bit that I'm offering because I don't feel very generous and I don't feel very intentional and I don't feel very persistent because I want to give up and I don't know what to do with it, but God, I love you and you've loved me intentionally and persistently and, and generously and, and so I want to love like you loved and it just feels so anemic. God, would you just take it and hear I love you because you love me and I fear you because you're good to me.
and I'm a broken shell of a person, and this is all I have to give. In that moment, God looks upon us, and he reminds us not even a cup of cold water will go without reward. And it's as if God says, oh, my child, I saved you not because I was irritated with you, but because I love you. And I receive your little medicine bottle of coins. And I keep it right here with me. Because it's a token of who you are. And I know you love me. And I love you. And so you serve me. Because there's going to come a day when I'm going to rejoice over you walking into my kingdom. And we will sit and rest together forever. To fear God you love him. And when you love God, you fear him. And sometimes interruptions in a story are a very good thing.